0: You're listening to a sermon by Hope Bible Church Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at hopeniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. Now, I want you to imagine this for a moment. Imagine that someone you love has moved to a new community and they're looking for a church and they contact you and ask you for some advice on what to look for. What should I look for in a new church? I want to go to a good church. What should I be looking for? I wonder what you'd tell them. Just think about that for a moment to yourself. What what advice would you give them? What would you tell them to be looking for as they search for a church? You know, ask the average uh, Christian uh, what makes for a good church, and you're likely to get a variety of answers. You know, some will probably quite quickly uh, talk about programming, finding a church that's got the kind of programming you're looking for that that fits where you're at, with well, your stage in life. There's there's some who would say, well, you know, you need a church with good music and the right style of music that, that suits you. I look for a church maybe that meets in a good location, or one that's friendly, maybe one that's got some good financial stability, maybe one with a nice facility, perhaps, I don't know. I, was, I perused an article this week that actually made the case for, for quality bathrooms, quality bathrooms. Maybe think of the trailer we used to have over on Scott Street, as I was reading that. Um, some would look for maybe a particular denomination, you know, and you, you look for what you've come from, that's what you should go to, or maybe soundness of doctrine, Perhaps you'd talk about a church that's got a vision for the mission that aligns with your own. I wonder, what advice would you give to somebody asking you for help in their search for a good church? Really, the, the, what we're really asking in this is, what makes for a good church? Uh, what, what makes a good church good? And uh, there's, there's no shortage of opinions, you could ask around, you get lots of different ideas and opinions. But here's the thing. If we want to know what makes for a good church, there's really only one opinion that matters, isn't it? It's God's. What does God say? What does the Bible tell us? What does Scripture say about what makes for a good church? I mean, if you're going to help someone find a church that they can attend, that will be good for them. Or even if we're going to assess how we're doing as a church and looking at... Are we healthy? Are we aligned with God's priorities? And really what we've got to do is we've got to search the scriptures, don't we? Are the main things in scripture the main things here? That's a question. Uh, That's a good question. And I'll raise another question. What are the main things? You know, what are the priorities of the Bible? What is it that God calls for in a good church? You know, at Hope Niagara, here at our church, at Hope Bible Church Niagara, it's our conviction that there are particular practices that God wants us to prioritize, that are essential, if we're in any sense of the way, gonna, in any sense of the word, going to say that this is a good church. There's things that God calls us to, that particular things that we believe are vital to our health, vital to our growth, and are essential if we're going to honor God. If we're going to honor Him, then we need to value these things and do these things with a high degree of passion, and commitment. Now, these, these convictions that we have, we call them our pillars. Our pillars. These are, and there's five of them, five pillars in our church. They are, you could call them our core values distinctives, these are things that we emphasize or try to emphasize because it's our conviction that it's what God emphasizes and what he wants us to emphasize. Things that we do, that we're committed to, that we understand from the Bible are a vital means by which God is pleased to grow his church and to bless our church. So this this morning I'm starting a new sermon series. The elders have asked me to teach this series. On our five pillars. So I got five sermons, each one. On one of our five uh, pillars. And uh, for some of you who have been here for uh, a long time, what this series will be for you is really a refresher, a a reminder, maybe even an opportunity just to renew and reaffirm your commitment to these things and our commitment together as a church family. Now, if you're like me and you're newer to this church, I've only been here a year, um, if you're newer to this church, then for some of you, this will be quite informative. You know, maybe you've been to Discover and essentials are our classes that we have that, to help us get to know what we're all about. Maybe you've heard of these things, uh, but here now in this season, we want to preach sermons on these things and teach, uh, Lord willing, clearly from Scripture, not only what these pillars are, but why they are pillars and why we hold them. So today is pillar number one. Uh, we're calling the series Building Up Standing strong. The five pillars of Hope Niagara. Pillar number one. Anybody know what our first pillar is? Anybody know? Anybody know? It is what? Unapologetic preaching. I think I heard a random smattering of about seven or eight people say it. So it means it's really good that I'm preaching this, right? So it's unapologetic preaching. This is the priority of proclaiming the authority of God's word without apology. That's our first pillar. And to show you where we get that, it's in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Would you turn there with me in the Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 4? And uh, if you don't have a Bible and you'd like to follow along with me, I encourage you to just reach out and lay hold of a pew Bible in front of you. Or if you've got an app on your phone, that works great too. 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 to 5, is our scripture text. Now, when you come to 2 Timothy, and you come to 2 Timothy 4, we understand the context to be that Paul, the apostle, is writing to his beloved son in the faith, Timothy. Timothy was not Paul's biological son or even adopted son, but he was like a son to Paul, and Paul was like a father to Timothy. Paul discipled Timothy, he commissioned him to ministry, they traveled together, Timothy served under him, alongside him, and at the time of writing here, as we're reading 2 Timothy, uh, Timothy is actually far away from Paul, Paul placed him in the city of Ephesus to be pastor there, to pastor that church, to lead that flock, and to help them to, to grow and get established and to become mature in Christ. So Timothy was there at Ephesus, which was a really hard place to be a Christian, and a really hard place to have a church, and a really hard place to pastor, but Timothy was there. Paul was in prison. And he was in prison because of his testimony for Jesus, because of the Gospel. And as you read this letter, you get the sense that Paul has the sense that his time is short. He, he talks about the fact that he believes the end is coming for him, that he's soon going to die, that he will soon be put to death because of his testimony for Jesus. And um, here we've got this letter from Paul the Apostle to his beloved son, Timothy. And here's the thing that's really neat about 2 Timothy, really sobering, is that chronologically it's the last letter that, that Paul wrote. Chronologically, So if you keep going in your Bible, like you see, there's at least a, there's a, two more books after this in your Bible that Paul wrote. But in terms of chronology, 2 Timothy, in terms of the timeline, was last. So here we are in 2 Timothy 4. We're in the last chapter of Paul's last book. And we're reading his last words to the young pastor who he loved like a son. It's almost like, imagine... Imagine somebody you love and respect who is wise is on their deathbed and they look at you and they say, come here, come close. There's one more thing I want to tell you. That's a serious moment, isn't it? What's this, what's this last thing you've got to tell me? That's what's going on here in 2 Timothy 4. Let there be light. Look what he says. I charge you. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready, in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. If you have an itch, what do you need to do with that itch? you got to scratch it. If you have itching ears, there's something you want to hear, and that's all you want to hear. He says some have itching ears, and they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Verse 4, and they'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Loved ones, here's the main thing I want you to see this morning. It's this, a central priority for every pastor and every church is the preaching of God's word. A central priority, like a thing you got to do. There's lots of things we can do, but here's something you've got to do. A central priority for every pastor and every church is the preaching of God's word. For Timothy, Paul's telling him, Timothy, this is a main responsibility for you, right? Last words, then, last instruction, the end of the last book. Timothy, listen, listen, I charge you, he says. Verse two, preach the word. Central priority for every pastor and every church is the preaching of God's word. Understand this that a pastor, a faithful pastor, has got to be more than just a preacher. I, there's, there's more things you got to do than just preaching if you're going to be a, a pastor. There's spiritual leadership, there's, there's, uh, there's shepherding, there's all kinds of discipleship care. There's, there's lots of things that a, a pastor is, has got to do as a pastor. So, I mean, a pastor's got to be more than just a preacher, but here's the deal. He cannot be less. He cannot be less. This means that for me as a pastor, i, I got to be sure that I devote the kind of time and prayer and planning and preparation to preach, I gotta, I gotta set aside and and protect time for study and for writing. I gotta commit to preaching for me as a pastor. And so for me, that means therefore, if I'm gonna do that, then I as I think about this myself, I'm like, well, there's there's things that I'm not going to get to. In fact, there's there's weeks in which there's maybe things I would like to do or that maybe you'd want me to do that I'm not gonna get to. I'm gonna have to defer or, or or maybe delegate because the reality is that it's a central priority for a pastor to preach the word. I will be honest with you. I got a lot of struggles. But one struggle that I'm thinking as I'm preparing this sermon is a constant battle for me is finding sufficient time to prepare my sermons. It's a constant battle. Uh, it, it's, it seems to be a regular challenge. I know the enemy doesn't want me to do it, and if I'm honest, sometimes my flesh doesn't want to do it, but I got to do it. And I can't be found, here's the deal. I can't, I think of it for myself and my responsibility here to you. I can't be found doing good things at the expense of central things. There's lots of good things I can be doing. But here's a central priority. Paul to Timothy preach the word. Timothy as a pastor, it's a central priority. Now, right about now, you might be listening to me and be like, oh, okay, fair enough. So- saying here, Ross, but why are you preaching this to us? You could probably just sort of stay at home, do the sermon to yourself, get geared up and show up next week and and try to preach well. Well, the reason I'm preaching it to you is because it's not just the pastor that needs to know this, it's the church that needs to know this too. It's the church that needs to believe this and affirm this. And I see this in 2 Timothy chapter 4, if you go down to the very last verse of the chapter, verse 22, I want to show you something. To me, it's a geeky little thing. I'm, I'm a bit of a geek, and I just to me, this stuff like this, just it tickles my fancy, okay? And, uh, but I want you to see it because I think it's really significant to the point that we're making here. Notice the last, the very last verse of 2 Timothy 4. It's the end of the book, the end of the letter. He says, Writing to Timothy, he says, The Lord be with your spirit, grace be with you. Now, if you're reading from the same translation as me, you've probably got a little number, the number six, right beside the word you. And if you look down, you'll see that's a footnote, and the translators there are telling you the Greek for you is plural. Right? Maybe you get some people in your family that say yous or y'all. Okay, that is that kind of thing. It's talking about the, the you. If I had said it's nice to see you, I mean, it's nice to see you, the plurality uh, you, not a particular person. Some of your Bibles will just have it rendered um, with you all, may grace be with you all, showing you that that's, that's the idea here. Now, this is really neat, and I'll tell you why it's neat. Because up till now, the whole letter has clearly been written to Timothy. We can see that in our text, too, can't we? He's telling Timothy, preach the word. But then you get to the very, very end of the book and you realize something. It is written to Timothy, but it's for the whole church. He writes to Timothy sort of like, like somebody might write to the editor of the newspaper. Yeah, writing a letter to the editor, but it's for everybody to read, that's the idea here. That's why I'm saying what I see in this text here when we look at the context. Yeah, essential priority for every pastor is the preaching of God's word. The loved ones, listen. Central priority for every church is the preaching of God's word. When Paul says to Timothy, preach the word, he's looking at Timothy, but he's talking to the whole church. It's a priority. Biblical preaching is a crucial priority for every local church. And I really firmly believe that if we do this, if we get this pillar right, so many other things will fall into place. If we're faithful in biblical preaching, we're going to be more likely to evangelize, more likely to engage in real fellowship, more likely to be engaged in discipleship, ministry, heartfelt worship. Why? Because biblical preaching produces those things. Every every pastor, every church central priority is the preaching of God's word. And if we are going to be building up and standing strong, standing, standing strong, this is a vital pillar that will hold us and will enable us to stand. It's sort of like it's sort of like a meal and a series of meals. You know, maybe growing up, your mom had a meal that I mean she could really make, and you can remember those meals, like, "Oh, my mom's chili," or my mom's lasagna," or whatever that dish was." And maybe there's some meals along the way. maybe it was a Christmas or an Easter celebration where, where you know you just, you just remember that meal. And uh, it nourished you, and man, it was really good. But she fed you a lot of meals growing up, a lot of meals, lots of them you don't remember. But each of them was prepared for you and you ate it and it nourished you so that you could grow and strong and be the big, strong person you are today. That's kind of like what we're seeing in terms of biblical preaching. There's gonna be sometimes you'll hear a sermon, and you're just like, man, that was exactly what I needed, and you'll remember it'll stick with you, hopefully for the right reasons. But there's lots of sermons that you'll hear and the Lord will speak in the moment and he will do good things. But over the course of time, you won't remember those particular sermons or particular meals, but they're all fed to you to grow you, to mature you, to bless the church. It's an appointed means by which God does good things in his church. That's why it's a central priority. A central priority for every pastor in every church is the preaching of his word. That's pillar number one. There it is. But here's the deal. It's not enough that you and I just know this. I mean, it's great if, you know, we'll all feel better about ourselves, but myself and the elders, if at the end I'm like, so what's the first pillar? And you all say, unapologetic preaching. All right, great, great. It's, I mean, it's not nothing that you know this, but it's not enough that you just know this. See, we've got to, it's important that we know it and maybe that we agree with it, but it's crucial that we believe it that it be a conviction for us, a firmly held belief, a core value. My question now is how do you come to a place of internalizing and affirming this in my heart, the importance of biblical preaching, unapologetic preaching, how do you do that? I think this text helps us in this because here's what I think. As I study this, I wrote this down. We will embrace the priority of preaching when we understand three things. Three things that are here in this text. We'll embrace the priority. We'll embrace, we'll affirm, we'll get behind the priority, this pillar of unapologetic preaching, when we understand three things. First, what it is. Second, what it does. And third, why it's important. Biblical preaching, what it is, what it does, why it's important. When you see these things, when you understand these things, it will serve, by God's grace, it will serve to help you affirm in your heart the priority of this in our church life. So, so what is it then? We're talking about biblical preaching. What are we talking about to preach? Well, look in the text what he says in verse 2, those three words, preach the word. To preach what it is, as in terms of the meaning, it means to, to openly declare something, to publicly proclaim. The word actually could be rendered herald. Herald. Like, not like your great uncle Harold, but like, like herald as in heralding a message. That's the idea. There was a time and place when heralds would come before the people and proclaim the message of the monarch. The monarch's got a, a message for the people, an edict, a law, an announcement, and the herald comes and, hear ye, hear ye, and declares that authoritative message. doesn't originate with the, the herald. The herald announces the message of another. That's what it means to preach. It's to openly declare. It's to proclaim. It's to herald news from another. Preach. Notice preach what? Preach, do you see that in the text? Preach the word. Well, the word here in this context is scripture. It's God's word, scriptures. In fact, I know for sure that's what he means, because right at the end of chapter three, just leading into this, Paul was reminding Timothy about the significance of the scriptures, Just look at chapter 3, verse 15. He he reminded Timothy in verse 15 how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. He talked about scripture, God's word. We would say, now we would say the Bible. I from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Notice verse 16: all scripture is breathed out by God. Now that's telling us something. When we're studying scripture, when we're spending time in the Bible, what we're reading, what we're hearing, as it were, is not the words of people, but the words of God. He says scripture, all scripture, Genesis through Revelation, all scripture is breathed out by God. Now, I want to do a little activity with you, okay? Ready for an activity? Take your hand, put it right in front of your face. No one's going to smack your hand, don't worry, okay? Just put it right, right in your face, like this. Now, just say something. You say, good morning, welcome to Hope. Good morning, well, just go ahead and do that. Good morning, welcome to Hope. Okay, did you do it? Did you do it? Somebody's just like, I'm not doing this. This is ridiculous. <laughs> I can't say I disagree with you, <laughs> but, but I want to show you something. So when you, when you did that, when you said that, just as I'm doing it now, what did you feel? What did you feel in your hand? You felt your hot breath, didn't you? And now your hand's all clammy, and you're, just, you're wiping it off like I'm doing right now, right? You felt your hot breath. So what happened here is you spoke words and in speaking, inherent to your speaking, vital to your speaking, is breathing out. Exhaling is vital to speaking. Without exhaling, you don't speak. What's Paul saying here about scriptures? The scriptures come from God. The, what he says, it comes from him. It doesn't originate with the human author. It originates with God. So what is it to preach? To preach the word is to proclaim the news, the message of God. Hear ye, hear ye. Here's what the Lord God says. That's what it is to preach. We do believe that the Bible is God's word to us. That's a fundamental belief that we have. And if I had more time today, I'd love to geek out telling you lots of evidences about that that testify to the fact that this is God's word. Like if I had more time, we'd spend time talking about the unity of scriptures, how from Genesis through Revelation, it's one constant theme with one main hero, with the same message from the same God, a united, a unified book. I talked to you about the accuracy of the Bible, how when you read the scriptures, and even just looking at the historical data from names and places and events that happen, again and again, as historians do their work and archaeologists do their work, we find again and again and again that the Bible gets it right. It testifies to its divine authorship. I talked to you about the preservation of the Bible. There has been a lot of people that have tried to get rid of this book. They're trying to see to it that you and I don't have it. But it's unstoppable. How I mean, Now, today, the Bible is more available than it's ever been in history. I'm talking about the preservation of the Bible. I'm talking about prophecy from the Bible. How there, are, there certainly are prophecies that we're looking to be fulfilled in the future, but there's an avalanche of prophecies in the Bible that have already been fulfilled in Scripture. I think even just one example, think about the person of Jesus Christ that that hundreds of years before Jesus was was born in the Old Testament, you could read about how the Bible predicted where he would be born, the nature of his birth, even the nature of his death before crucifixion was even invented. Not only that, even right down to Jesus being sold and betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, predicted hundreds of years before he was born. What I'm saying is there's lots of compelling evidences that testify to the reality that the Bible is God's word, but this is indeed what we are to preach God's word. I don't have anything for you. Like, if you're looking to me to help you, I can't. I got nothing on my own. But any help that I have, I do have help for you, but it doesn't come from me, it comes from the Lord. In fact, the same thing could be said for you and your fellowship together, whether it's in your small group or in your Christian friendships. We don't have anything for each other. Save for this, we've got the Lord. And we've got his word. You know, what it is to preach, what it is, is to preach God's word, it's to preach the scriptures. And so, my aim, my passion in life is to week after week, as God gives me grace to do it, to expose for you what we're seeing here in scripture. We call that expositional preaching. All that means is, as a preacher, I want to help you to see what you can see here right in front of you in the page in your Bible. One of the reasons I often encourage you to open your Bible so you can see it for yourself. I don't want you to think it's just me making this up. You, you to see it for yourself. And to check it. Check it and see where, where do I get that from. And hopefully, not always, I won't, sure won't do it perfectly, but hopefully week after week, you'll be you'll hear what I'm saying and you'll be like, Oh yeah, I, I see that, I see that, yeah, that is what that says. And then maybe sometimes when I throw something out there, like, I don't see that. That would be a, a healthy criticism, a healthy critique. But the reality is, is that my task, my mandate, is to preach the word. And it's not just my mandate, it's ours as a local church. It's what we're called to do, to preach the authority of God's word. To not preach with authority, to preach the authority of God's word. There's a difference when we say we want to preach without apology, we're not talking about being rude or being harsh or being having an in-your-face tone. No, when we say without apology, we recognize that it's God's word. So if it lands on you as unwelcome as sometimes it does, we're not going to apologize for it because we didn't write it. God did. In fact, that's a line I learned a number of years ago working with a street evangelist. And uh, I remember him saying this, you know, people get in his face, especially when you talk about sin and judgment to come. he's like, people get in my face about, about this stuff. And he's like, I just remind people, he's like, I'm like, whoa, whoa, wait, 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 Just just want to tell you something. I didn't write the Bible. I, I didn't write it. And I thought, you know, that's, that's, that's brilliant. In one sense, it's kind of disarming, but it's also an implicit reminder that, hey, I'm just the message bearer. There is somebody real you got to deal with. So that's what we mean when we talk about preaching God's word without apology. We mean preaching the Bible, preaching scripture. That's what it is. And why do it? Well, in part because of what it does. We'll embrace the priority of preaching when we understand what it is. It's preaching God's word. But also when we see what it does. And what does it do? Well, Paul tells us some of what it does in verse two. He says, you notice, preach the word. You see that? Be ready in season and out of season. Notice these words. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. So in preaching, Timothy, in proclaiming the authority of God's word, you're going to be doing these things. And these are the kinds of things that God's word does. What does it do? Well, sometimes it reproves us, or it corrects us. You know, if a shepherd corrects its sheep, he means he's got a big hook on the end of his staff, and when that sheep is wandering, there's a little course correction goes off. He reaches out and pulls that little sheepy back in line. You all know I'm a dog lover, right? So I think of the border collie that's out there in the field with the sheep. And what's that border collie doing? Herding the sheep together. And maybe there's some barking, maybe a little nipping, like, ooh, ouchie, that hurt. But the little sheepie gets back on line and on track because it's dangerous for the little sheepie to wander away. That's the reality here. What does God's word do? It corrects us. It keeps us on course. When we stray, it brings us back on point, on track with the Lord. Sometimes God's word rebukes us. It confronts us in our sin. It calls out our error. And sometimes in preaching God's word, we're going to exhort, or it could also be rendered encourage. There's a positive tone here in this word, a, a pleading, an appealing, an affirming, a calling to obey, a supporting in your going and following the Lord. Correct rebuke, exhort, or encourage. What we're seeing here that Paul is talking about here is he's showing us what preaching the Bible does. What happens when you preach God's word? What does it do? It's a primary way of God changing people's lives. The preaching of his word. It's a primary way. Think about the things that God has accomplished in redemption history by speaking. Just some of the things. Go back to the very beginning of the Bible, the first Genesis chapter one. God created the universe by doing what? Speaking. God said, Let there be light. And there was. Sort of like, I'm having a deja vu moment. Yeah, a few minutes ago, right? We could have timed that better. He spoke things into existence. The great story of redemption begins in some ways in earnest in Genesis 12 when God spoke to Abraham and thus began a great story of redemption. Or how about a passage like Ezekiel 37? It's one of my many favorite passages in the Bible where the prophet Ezekiel is given a vision. He stands before a valley and all he sees across the valley are bones, like dead bodies, dry bones. It's a vision he's given. And through the speaking of God's word, God shows these bones coming together and flesh being formed on them, and death comes to life. And then we see it in real life and real action in the life of Jesus. John chapter 11, remember Lazarus had been dead in the grave for a few days, and Jesus shows up. And what did he do at the foot of the grave? What did he do at the opening of the tomb? He spoke Lazarus, come out! And the man who had been dead, King James says, he stinketh. The man who had been dead, he gets up out of that grave. The dead body. Imagine, imagine standing over somebody's casket. And somebody calls them out of him out name and says, come out. And all of a sudden, air enters the lungs. And they sit up and they stand up and come out. How did that happen? The word of God. Jesus spoke. How about Jesus himself? He's called the word of God. In fact, if you are in Christ, if you're believing on Jesus today, you are there because you heard a word from God. Some of you are like, I did? Yeah, you did. You heard the good news about Jesus. You heard about what he did for you on the cross, that he died to pay for your sin, just like we sang about this morning, that he arose from the dead, and that when you turn and trust in him and believe on him, you'll have your sins forgiven and you'll belong to him forever. You heard a word and something happened to many of you you changed. He went from maybe being indifferent or even hostile to now believing. He went from what the Bible describes as being spiritually dead to being really, truly alive. What happened? You heard news. You heard a word that comes from God that changed you. That's what Peter says, 1 Peter 1 and 23. He says, You've been born again through the living and abiding word of God. See, God, uses, God speaks, a, a, a primary means by which he works in this world is through speaking, and he speaks through his word, and he's changing you too. You know, Jesus prayed to his father, he said, talk, praying for his disciples, he said, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. You know, when we think about ourselves, lots of us, we look at our own lives, we've got some problems, don't we? Some of us. Some of us got big problems. i got a few myself. You've got habits you can't break? You got... Patterns of thinking that you, you, you can't overcome. you got insecurities and fears that you can't beat. God's got a plan for your life, a plan and a path for you to walk on, but you can't seem to stay on it. you got desires and passions that war within you, and you can't seem to tame. You know, one pastor put it this way. He said, you are the biggest problem with you. I wrote down on my notes, just so you know, I am the biggest problem with me. But there's good news, God can change you. And some of you, be encouraged this morning, he is changing you. You're not the way you used to be. You got a ways to go, we all do. But you're not what you were. And what's happening is God is using his word by his spirit to change you. That's what biblical preaching does. It's not just in the preaching of God's word, but it's a primary, central means by which he does good things for his people. He changes lives. And see, we'll embrace the priority of preaching when we understand what biblical preaching does. It brings people, it calls people from death to life. And it's a means by which God sanctifies us and changes, changes us. So we'll embrace this, we'll internalize this, when we understand what it is, it's proclaiming God's word, that's what it is. What it does, it's a primary means by which God changes lives. But we'll also internalize and embrace the priority of biblical preaching when we understand why it's important. Now, in some ways, we've already said lots of things about why it's important, but I want you to notice really particularly what Paul said in verse 1. Notice what he says in verse 1. He says, I charge you, to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. And then in verse 2, he's going to say, preach the word. Notice who he calls on as witnesses here. There's another little geeky thing here that I just love that's helpful to see in the background is that in the Old Testament part of the judicial process required that there be, at a minimum, two witnesses. So as Paul calls Timothy to preach and be faithful in preaching God's word, notice who Paul calls on as witnesses. God and his son Jesus. Now, hands up if you think that's some pretty heavy authority there. Hands up if you think. Like, yeah, that's fairly persuasive. Fairly uh, strong affirmation here that you should do this. Why is it important that we preach the Bible? Why is unapologetic preaching a priority? Why is it important? Well, because God expects it. He expects it. Here, God and Jesus himself are called on as witnesses. Therefore, in Paul's mind, showing that, that they are approving of this solemn charge and affirming it's a priority, Timothy. Yeah, you got a long list of things to do, but here's the thing you got to do is preach. And he reminds him, too, that we're accountable to God. You see that in verse 1? I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. Now talking about Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. Now, a couple different ways this could go. He could have in mind people who need to hear the gospel, hear the preaching of the good news of Jesus. And Paul could be impressing on Timothy an urgency here. That, hey, these people are going to stand before the judge. They need to hear the good news. That that could be legit that could be legitimately what he's saying. He could also be reminding Timothy of the fact that, hey, you're accountable for this charge. That you're you're accountable, you're gonna stand before the Lord yourself that day, and that's a pretty sobering thing. So another kind of urgency. I don't really know how to break the tie on this, but I would say to you that Paul is impressing on here, in view of eternity, a serious urgency on Timothy. He talks about Jesus, who's the judge of the living and the dead, and by or in view of his appearing, he's coming back, praise God, and his kingdom, his eternal kingdom. So there's eternity to come, and Jesus is going to return. He's going to usher in his eternal kingdom. So Timothy, preach the word, man. Preach it. Tell the people what God has said. I told you last week that Uh, One of my heroes of the faith is Charles Spurgeon, and uh, I think I confess to you that when I read my Bible, I also uh, just about every day read something, at least something small, from Charles Spurgeon. He lived from 1834 to 1892. Now, one of my favorite preachers now is Dr. Rick Reed. Uh, He's the president of Heritage Seminary, and he wrote this just little, little snippet about Spurgeon that I thought was so fitting this morning. I just want to read it to you. Listen to what he says about Spurgeon. One of the best preachers of all time was also one of the most courageous. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was uniquely gifted to communicate God's word. He preached his first sermon when he was 16. Like, what were you doing when you were 16? He preached his first sermon at 16, and by the age of 22, he was pastor of a congregation of several thousand parishioners. While still in his 20s, he was called to be pastor of Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, England. He preached faithfully and powerfully at the tabernacle for the next 37 years. Each week, thousands gathered to hear God's word preached by a man who had been called the Prince of Preachers. By all accounts, Spurgeon was a gifted preacher. But he was far more than a preacher. While pastoring the tabernacle, he still made time to found over 60 organizations, including an orphanage, a pastor's college, and an organization designed to distribute Christian literature and tracts. It might be easy to think that ministry came easy for Spurgeon, but that's not the case. While his public ministry was powerful, listen, his personal life was often painful. His wife, Susanna, contracted a rare disease that largely confined her to home. Spurgeon himself suffered from several chronic debilitating illnesses, gout, rheumatism, and Bright's disease as an inflammation of the kidneys. These illnesses often forced him to take time away from the pulpit to regain strength. In addition to physical challenges, Spurgeon knew the pain of stinging criticism. His commitment to doctrinal purity often aroused the scorn and ridicule of other pastors. While he carried on courageously, he still was deeply wounded by these unrelenting personal attacks. In 1857, he wrote, listen to these words. He wrote, Down on my knees have I often fallen with the hot sweat rising from my brow under some fresh slander poured upon me. In an agony of grief, my heart has been well nigh broken. Maybe you know what that's like. Have your heart well nigh broken again and again. Again. The physical illness and personal attacks took their toll on Spurgeon. For much of his life, he battled recurring depression, which he called his fainting spells. It's not lost on me that one of my heroes of the faith struggled with depression. Dr. Reed says, How was he able, he asks, how was he able to persevere and endure such hardships? Part of the answer lies in the perspective by which he lived. Spurgeon realized it mattered little what others thought of him and his ministry. However, it mattered supremely what his Lord thought. Once when addressing a gathering of preachers, Spurgeon challenged them to adopt this same outlook. Listen to what he said. Oh, brethren, we shall soon have to die. We look on each other in the face today in health, but there will come a day. When others will look down upon our pallid countenances as we lie in our coffins. It will matter little to us who shall gaze upon us then, but it will matter eternally how we have discharged our work during our lifetime. And I think that's a big piece of what Paul is impressing on Timothy here in Second Timothy chapter 4. That Timothy, the time is drawing near. Paul knew for himself the time was drawing near. And he knew that the days were evil. And he called on Timothy in light of that. My son in the faith, my brother, preach the word. God expects it. And you know something else? People need it. We won't dwell here long, but do you remember what he said in verse 3 and 4? Just have a look there again. He says the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. I wonder when that time will come. They'll not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they'll accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. So instead of sitting under the preaching of one faithful pastor, they will pile up for themselves other teachers who just affirm their own fallen passions. Sound familiar? I wonder when these days are going to come. When will they arrive? He says, and also they'll turn away from listening to the truth and notice, wander off into myths Of course, these are the days in which we live where people tragically are fooled by the enemy and their flesh into believing myths. And there's no shortage of people to propagate such myths. People who sound oh so sure and oh so wise. And yet leading people into myths about all kinds of things. Everything from your personal identity to gender, even the definition of love... Even the very nature of truth itself. Everybody talks like they know, like they're an expert, like they got a corner on the truth, but here's the reality. What we need is we need to know what does God say about these things. Because the more we hear God's voice, the less there is confusion. And the more we follow God's voice, we will not be walking in myths, but we will be walking in the truth, in the light, in hope, and our purpose. Loved ones, we'll embrace the priority of preaching when we understand what it is. It's proclaiming the authority of God's word without apology. That's what it is, what it does. It's, it's God's, God is pleased to use the preaching of his word to change lives, and why it's important. God expects it, and people need it. Now, true confession, as I was writing my sermon, I was thinking to myself, it feels like right here is a great place to end the sermon. But my confession to you is I'm like, there's still something else here that needs to be said that's just glaring at me in the text. And so I, I got to add this because I think it's pretty crucial. You see, just because God expects us to, be, to preach the Bible and just because people need it does not mean it will be easy. In fact, as we said a few minutes ago, there's reality is that there's much opposition and sometimes animosity that comes of preaching God's word. And what... Paul is reminding Timothy here of, in part, is that you are to preach the word, but understand this, there's lots of people who are not going to want to hear it. We see that in verses 3 and 4, and we experience that in our times. Plus, the devil doesn't want people hearing it, so he'll be working hard with demonic power to frustrate it and put a stop to it. It's, It's going to take something, Timothy. It's going to take something to see this through. And the thing that I want to leave you with this morning is, what is it that it will take? I mean, how do you persevere through? We saw just a moment ago that part of the answer is indeed having that eternal perspective. But there's something else Paul says here that I want to leave you with this morning. And it's it's three marks, I'll say these briefly, three marks of unapologetic preaching. Verse two, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Notice, with complete patience... And teaching. How do you do with patience in your life? How do you do? Are you a rock star at patience? Some of us are chuckling to ourselves. We think that's, that's a struggle point. You know, this word patience here could be rendered long-suffering. That sounds like fun. Long-suffering. Not just suffering. Long-suffering. It's patience. Unapologetic preaching is marked by complete Patience. It's recognizing that there will be abuse, there will be opposition, there will be misunderstandings, there will be many tests and trials along the way. Really, for the preacher and for the church that affirms the priority of biblical preaching, the reality is is that it will not be easy, and it will call for patience. Patience to endure the opposition, but also, also, I think, too, patience for people to hear and to respond in faith and obey. The change that God is working in our lives is a process. Requires complete patience. It also requires, secondly, careful instruction. Unapologetic preaching is marked by careful instruction. When you look at that phrase there, with complete patience and teaching, the end of verse two, complete patience and teaching, the word complete goes with patience, but also with teaching. So I take that to mean careful teaching. Show in the scriptures where do you see this in the Bible? I think, I think a great application, a great way you can affirm the priority of biblical preaching, a great way and even a simple way, is by checking what the preacher's saying, whether it's me or somebody else, checking what they're saying with what the Scriptures say. Is, is that here? Do I see that here? Where, where is that here? Ah, yes, I see that. Yes, yes, it's there. I see that. It's true. Careful teaching. A part of our task as preachers is to show you in Scripture the point of the word, it's something I have to discipline myself to remember to do while I'm preaching, but something you and I all have to do, remind ourselves as we're listening to preaching, to be watching for that. Complete patience, careful instruction, finally, constant readiness. Did you notice that in verse 2? He says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Now I hear in season and out of season, I think duck hunting, something like that, right? There's a, there's a time to shoot the ducks, And there's a time to not do it. Like, there's a right time, there's not a right time. What does Paul say about the right time for preaching? All seasons. In season or out of season. Whether people want to hear it or not. Whether people are receptive to it or not. Whether the conditions are favorable or not. Preach the word. Do you ever have, honestly, it's just us here, so you can be honest, okay? Do you ever have Sundays when you don't feel like coming to church. Just don't feel like it. There can be lots of reasons. Maybe you're just tired, sleepy, I get that. Maybe you're sorrowful, heartbroken. You don't want to face people, especially people who care about you because they're gonna ask you how you are and expect not a fake answer. Maybe you're frustrated, maybe you're a little angry. Maybe you're in conflict. Or there's tension. Do you ever have days, Sundays, when you wake up and you realize, oh, it's Sunday, and I don't want to go? Lots of you do, don't you? I'm going to tell you something. The preacher has Sundays like that, too. I don't feel like going for all those reasons, same reasons, But what does Paul say? Preach the word in season and out of season. When you feel like it and when you don't feel like it, preach the word. And I think a derivative application of this would be be under the preaching of the word. When you feel like it and when you don't feel like it, it's a central priority for every pastor and every church and it's why it's one of our pillars by which we trust that we'll be built up and on which we'll stand in the Lord now as I close I think one important and kind of simple application for us to do like right now is to pray to pray for our church that we would embrace and affirm that pillar, that it wouldn't just be a sign on the wall in the lobby or something we remember as a value of our church, but something we do value. Pray that our church would have a deep, growing love for God's word and that we'd be hungry to hear it and come expecting not just to worship the Lord in song and not just to see brothers and sisters who do love us, And who may surprise you with more encouragement than you would have expected. But also to come expecting to hear from God. Not because the deliverer of the message of the day is anything special, but the message he delivers is special. Because it's from him. To pray that our church would have a deep growing love for his word. To pray for our people. The people around you. That we would be hearers of the word and doers of the word. Like to receive it, and to act on it, and I would ask you humbly, but seriously, would you pray for me? When Spurgeon was asked, looking at this fruitful ministry that he had, he was asked once, "What's the secret of your fruitfulness?" You know what he said? The secret is is that my people pray for me. They pray and i want to take this opportunity to affirm and to express gratitude for many of you that i know pray for me and whoever's preaching on a given sunday you pray it's huge i will go so far as to say this in all seriousness the only reason i'm standing up here preaching this sermon this morning is likely more to do with your prayers than you realize and probably more than even i realize but to pray for your preacher the battle is spiritual The enemy is real, the needs are great, and I told you last week when I preach, I feel a huge pressure, huge pressure. And that's not an excuse or to make you feel bad for me, it's just a reality, but that's why I need you to pray. In fact, why don't I just stop talking and just pray, okay?